0: Wow, where do I even begin with today's episode? The first thing I need you guys to know is that there is a trigger warning. Today's episode addresses sexual assault and trauma-informed birthing with three birth stories. The first half of the episode covers the sexual assault and how that shaped the births. And then in the second half of the episode, we get into the birth stories how the first two birth stories encompassed and enveloped that trauma, and then the tools that were used to heal, to have a redemptive birthing experience through trauma. Britta Bushnell says, birth does not ask us to be fearless. It asks us to be brave. And that is what today's episode is all about If listening to an episode on sexual assault would be triggering for you, please push pause and move on to the next episode. If you are someone who might need to hear today's story, it is recorded for you. So thank you for being part of listening to Juanita's story. Let's get to it. Part one, Juanita Chase. As I was recording this episode, it needed to be broken apart into two different episodes. So this is part one, and I hope you will stick around for part one and part two. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hides. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them, and you, deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions birth story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings, and of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story. I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Okay, just a little something before we get started today. And that is, what happens if you don't take Birth Story Academy? So like, let's say you're pregnant. That's why you're listening to the Birth Story podcast. And you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But like... Do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage. Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know. Do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions, pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition, and like we get into it. We make birth plans. We do birth visions. We listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations. And like at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's going to happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences. How to take care of your baby. So I guess what I'm getting at is if you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan? Right? Like I want to be your teacher. I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth. And how to have body autonomy and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. Like... I'm going to teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, like wash that anxiety away because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy and you are ready to crush that birth, right? Okay, let's do it and let's get to this episode. Hey Juanita, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I am very excited to be talking to you today about your birth stories and trauma-informed birth and doula support and hospital birth and home birth and all of the things. So before we get started, everyone, trigger warning We are going to be talking about sexual assault today. We are going to be talking about trauma and we are going to be talking about the impact and the role that that can play in your pregnancy and in your birth. If this is not something that you could handle, hear or listen, I'm going to give you the appropriate amount of time right now to just end listening to this podcast, skip over it and move on to another episode. But if, especially if there's children with you in the car or at home, this is an explicit episode and we are going to talk about very difficult topics. If you are a survivor of sexual assault or abuse and you are ready, this episode is for you, right? We are speaking to you. We are recording this for you. We hope that you are ready today. If you are not ready today, push pause, and come back to this episode when you are ready. Juanita, thank you so much for being here, sharing your story on my platform. So let's get to it. Let's start at the beginning. Who are you?
1: I'm Juanita Chase. I'm a mama of three. I live in Los Angeles. I'm a writer, performer, and small business owner, I've written plays and poems that have toured all over the world and now I've started a small business out of my own healing tools. It's called Pause Anywhere. We have mindfulness cards, guided journals, and self-tending bundles and my whole healing platform is really movement, meditation, and writing and so that's what this business has grown out of and offers tools to other people for that and you can find that at Pause Anywhere on Instagram and my Instagram is at the Snappy Hippie.
0: I love it, Snappy Hippie. And then what is the website? Is it pauseanywhere.com?
1: Oh yeah. We keep it real simple, Pauseanywhere.com, anywhere.com, pause anywhere on Facebook, pause anywhere on Instagram. Because I really it's creating many moments of mindfulness. Cause we all don't have two hours to sit in meditation, right? Mm-hmm. But you could sit for two minutes and really just even two minutes being with yourself can really shift the synapses in your brain and calm your parasympathetic nervous system down, which so many of us need.
0: Yeah. Especially those of us that are survivors of many traumatic events and our fight or flight lights to take off at random moments. Right. Right.
1: And and we've all been these last two years, we've all been in a, a crazy kind of freeze holding pattern, you know, so even if life is going great, the world around us is has taken us on a ride
0: it has. So, I'm really excited for the audience to be introduced to pause anywhere. But today, that's the garden, right? So, we're going to go back on a journey and we are going to talk about like how we took that earth and that soil and that dirt that looked like nothing could come from it and how you planted seeds and watered it and cultivated it and then this is where you have arrived as a survivor, a true survivor, someone who has risen and three birth stories, unique, different, and informed, changing, and this is your platform. So, let's go all the way back now.
1: All the way back.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, so, seven years old. Where were you living?
1: Seven years old, my mother had just left my stepfather, so my second father in my life, and we moved to a small neighborhood in Virginia, just me and my mom. There was a playground outside. My mom was a single mom. It was the '90s where kids could just play outside without the without all kind of helicopter mom supervision, which I am that mom now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was an older man in the neighborhood, and it led to this man molesting me right outside of my own house in in at a playground. And so that was my very first experience with. Um, being a sexual object and sexual violence. Um, This man was probably in his fifties or sixties and I was seven. And many of us were taught at that time that you don't question elders. You don't, uh, that's authority. You know, you respect elders to the nth degree. And my mother was already going through so much that I didn't feel I could tell anyone. So that was something that I held for 25 years. I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell anybody.
0: Was it a single incident?
1: No, it was multiple incidents, multiple times going out to the playground. And, you know, it's at first in my healing journey, I kind of beat myself up a little bit, like, why would I ever go outside again? And it was like, because I was a kid.
0: Yes, of course. (laughs) I was
1: a kid and I was lonely. And this old nasty man was also like offering me candy and attention. And my mother was going through a divorce and was working two jobs. Like there was just not a lot of supervision for me. And it can be very confusing to a young person that something feels wrong, but they're getting things that they also want attention, someone being kind to them, giving them candy, you know, and when you're alone in seven, you're just looking for somebody to pay attention to
0: you. So when and how did that end? We moved. That was it. As simple as that.
1: We were there. We lived there for about a year while my mom was going through the divorce with my stepfather. And then we moved to a different neighborhood.
0: If you had to guess, how many times do you think you were assaulted?
1: Probably about four.
0: Okay. I'm so sorry, Juanita.
1: Me too. And it's really interesting because as you get older, you think that uh, somehow you were asking for it. And then when I see six and seven and eight-year-olds now as adult I'm just like how like how could anybody this precious little baby you know like yeah so I've done a lot of healing work around there a lot of forgiving of myself and I actually was able two years ago I actually went back to the place where it happened because there was I was questioning myself and when I went back and I realized that every single visual memory that I had was exactly in the same place it was when I visited it allowed me to trust myself again
0: okay I was going to say, time to buy the land and mow it down, (laughs) turn it into something else. Do you know his name?
1: Mm -mm. He didn't even really speak English.
0: Okay. So So, I was wondering if there was an opportunity later to, you know, I don't know if you can press charges that many years later, but. He's um, probably dead. dead. He was very, very old. Yeah. So. Well, there's some comfort in that, right? Did you ever have any ill feelings towards your mother, like that you had to work through? Uh, many, <laughs> many.
1: Okay. I had both of my parents. I had very absent parents in my childhood. And look, they were both really young. They were only married for a year. They both got remarried again multiple times. I think in my own healing and my own emotional intelligence growing that I have had compassion for them now because they were not in a place to heal or to be seen or to parent. Yeah. They needed a lot more support, but there's multiple things that I had to work on forgiveness with my mom. Would you use the word neglect? I haven't before, but I've always used the word absence. But yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've, she, I try not to use the word should, but I wished that she would have come outside with me. I'm sure she needed a break like many of us do when we have kids. Mm-hmm. But I wish that there would have been somebody with me instead yeah. of so
0: much alone time. It's so interesting to hear you sharing right now because mine are six and seven years old and many listening to this podcast are on a journey to parenthood. So maybe they found this podcast because they already have a few older children and they're pregnant again, right? Or this is the first time they have ever been pregnant and are looking for a support in a community to prepare for their upcoming birth. I live directly across the street from a 100-acre park. It's beautiful. There's a greenway. There is a playground in my front yard. I am not a survivor of sexual assault. So this is something where I'm having a conversation with you but don't have firsthand experience on what that may be like or feel like. But I've never let my children go to that park alone. And I... I have guilt often in the opposite direction as the parent, Juanita. Can you believe that? Like, that I don't give them the space or the freedom to be children, to roam, right? Like you said, helicopter. I'm like, I am a helicopter parent because we want to protect them. But sometimes I often wonder if not letting them go to that park where... Something like what happened to you may or may not happen to them. Am I also doing a disservice to them by not allowing them the freedom to explore? You know,
1: I think also some I'm really as a parent, it's taken a whole new twist, like consent in parenting. Mm -hmm. I'm actually taking a whole like training and class next week on it. But about starting to talk to our kids from the age of, you know, two through eight years old is what the class is focused on. But no one talked about these things to me, you know, it was like flat blanket, you know, respect elders, even like, you know, what would the neighbors say if you talked back to somebody, you know, and then coming from a place now, of like talking to our kids about saying no, telling your parent what's off limits, what does it feel like when something's uncomfortable and having those questions? You know, maybe that's something you'd be interested in, too, if you know that your kids are like. Filled with the tools, you might let them roam a little farther. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm hoping that for myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. So looking back at your that seven year old self and that first assault, your first sexual experience, right, mm-hmm. being something that you cannot like clearly non consensual, or someone perpetrate, perpetrated an attack on you, right. Mm-hmm. How do you, how did you move forward from that? Like you move you moved away, but mm-hmm. you never shared with your mom.
1: No, I didn't share with anybody for twenty five years.
0: <laughs> so how does a seven year old or an eight year old move on from that? You you wake up in a new house in a new neighborhood. Yeah, I
1: I just uh, I'll be using quotes here for your listeners. I just. I, I stuffed it. I repressed it. I forgot about it. I put it away. A, a, again, I, there was some self-blame that happened with the seven-year-old. You know, I, cause there were times where he would approach me and I would lay down and pretend he was, I was sleeping, hoping that he would just walk past me because I was sleeping. And when I look at, think of that as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow. Like you really thought you were doing something of like pretending you're sleeping. And through my research, that's, kids do that. Kids pretend or they play or, you know, you, um, you hide I was essentially like trying to hide from this person in plain sight. And so, you know, when we moved and feeling like I had done something wrong, I just, I didn't want to get in trouble. So I just never told anybody and just stuffed it down deep
0: inside. Do you think there were other victims? I'm sure. I'm sure. I was just wondering when you're at the playground, like, was it, were you alone at the playground? Was it a quiet playground or were there other children that would have witnessed something and not spoken up?
1: No, it was kind of similar to you. Not that big of a playground, but it was literally the backyard of the townhouse we were in. You could see it from our windows. And so I'm not sure when we moved there, like, month-wise, but for whatever reason, I
0: was the only kid out there. Ever. Yeah. So you and your mom move on. Mm-hmm. Did you stay in the same city?
1: No, no. different cities, same state. Okay. Uh, Northern, Northern Virginia. I'm from Northern Virginia.
0: Okay. Northern Virginia. So you guys have moved on. Now, before this podcast started, you let me know that you had multiple mm-hmm. perpetrators from the ages of seven to 14. Mm-hmm. When was the next time that this happened to you?
1: Uh, The next time was the summer between 7th and 8th grade.
0: Okay.
1: I had a really good best friend, and she was dating an older boy. And for some reason, he showed up at my house. It was summertime, and he showed up at my house. We were all going to each other's houses all summer. We lived walking distance from each other. And uh, my friend's boyfriend raped me, and that was my first penetration, my first time I shy away from using the word virginity. Right. (laughs) Um, And again, I blamed myself for it. It was a lot of coercion. I I was very, very much no at first. And he just kept on, kept on, kept on. And then, um, yeah, he raped me. And I thought it was my fault because it was my friend's boyfriend. I let him into my house. I could not tell anybody. And then, but here I am, this 12-year-old girl who now has had sex and has no one to talk to about it. So very quickly, I got a boyfriend and I had sex with this boyfriend very, very quickly. But because I needed to be able to have like a sex story, so then I could talk to people about, oh, why did it feel like this? Is this okay? Why, you know, why did this happen? This is how my body reacted and being able to talk about having had sex, but not talk about the actual first experience. And again, I'd never. That was my virginity story for twenty plus years. Always mm. was this other guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I my I'm just traveling back in time to middle school, right? And I was an early P and V happening, consensual on my end though, but it, it was very early. I did a lot of exploration in middle school. So I'm, I'm, my brain is traveling back there and I know you've been through therapy and now you have the speaking platform. So like, if you would just take a minute, if you could talk to your, that, if you could talk to that seventh grader and that seven year old, what do you say to her to be gentle to her?
1: Oh my gosh! I've done so many loving, healing work with my 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 seven year old, my twelve year old, my fourteen year old. Uh, just say that it was. It's so not your fault. It is so not your fault. You just want again the having such absent, just being alone so much as a young person. Yeah, you know that just giving myself space i've taken my seven-year-old shopping before and Mm -hmm. like to a real like tchotchke store and being like you have twenty dollars you can buy anything that makes you happy and it's been really sweet to see what my seven-year-old self is like attracted to i got myself a dinosaur ring and you know like some candy
0: do you do ifc inner family circles counseling
1: Uh, No, but people have shared that with me.
0: Okay. It sounds very similar. It's where you go back and you communicate with yourself at different stages of life. So, like, I had some abandonment issues when I was one, when my mom left. And so, like, I go back to my one-year-old self and I pick her up and I hold her and I rock her. And I give her the things that she needed. And so, I love that. So, you needed a dinosaur ring.
1: You know? (laughs) And then just... To remember that I, because when you're sexually assaulted so young, there is a piece of your innocence that I feel like I lost. There's a a grown up factor that comes in, right? It takes away a little bit of your childhood. So then to take myself shopping and see, like, what was I into? Like, what were the kid things? You know, it was really, it's been really helpful to do that.
0: Yeah. Have you done anything, like, really playful, like taking yourself to, like, Disney World or, you know, something that's catered more towards a younger person?
1: Uh, No, that's a really good idea. But I have taken my younger self, like, just in car rides and I'll, like – Buckle their seatbelt and I'll put on music that they like, roll down their yeah. windows. <laughs>
0: so. Yes, I love it. This I think we're in very similar types of therapy for, for different things, but it is very healing and therapeutic. We're going to get into your birth stories and how this informs your birth in a minute as we dig through the story. But what's coming up for me right now is when I am working with doula clients and pregnant persons that are survivors of abuse and assault or have had any sort of previous traumatic childbirth experience, Mm -hmm. I have them what's called complete their birth. I'm not a therapist this comes from absolutely nowhere but it just is something from my own therapy sessions that made sense to me so I have everyone retell the story mm. so like if you didn't have a C section like let's walk through that that moment where they called the C section and like let's pretend they didn't call the C section and like let's let's walk through like what was it like to give birth vaginally to this child mm. And to complete the birth, so that they had seen, yeah, before. that they had seen, rather than what actually happened to them, which was ending up in the OR or something that seemed pretty traumatizing to them. So this type of therapy is is helpful for anyone that's listening that hasn't gone down that therapy route. Like this is your that's your starting point, I think. Right, is saying I'm- it out loud. Yeah, and then I would love to add one more that was so
1: healing for me was yeah. my therapist told me, cause there was all these, like, I shouldn't have gone to that playground. I shouldn't have done, done this. She had me go home and write. They should didn't have.
0: Yes. And did a
1: whole thing. This person should not have done this. This person should not have done this. And then flip the narrative of like, it was not my responsibility to protect nope. myself from being harmed. It was the other person's responsibility from not harming me.
0: Yes. Beautiful. That is, that is very beautiful. I have a lot of things I could probably write in my journal today that are triggering right now that I could think about that I need to still heal and flip that script
1: on. Yeah. So
0: I think that's wonderful. So you're in middle school, you get a boyfriend, you're sexually active. Have you had a period?
1: No, I hadn't even had a period yet. Yeah. Okay. I was a late bloomer. I actually got my period on leap year. Okay. <laughs> in In eighth grade, so I had been sexually active with my boyfriend, and then I finally got a period towards the middle end of
0: my eighth grade year. How old was your boyfriend? He was twelve or thirteen, so, and I was thirteen. <laughs> so same age.
1: I was an eighth grader, and he was a seventh grader. So there was like a little stigma attached with
0: the, <laughs> the younger boy. <laughs> Did other people know that you had had sex with each other? Yeah.
1: And that was a really hard stigma that followed me for a really long time is that like now I'm the slut. I am easy. I'm having sex, you know, now because other girls aren't. So now I am now a target for other boys wanting to have sex Mm -hmm. and a target for gossip and rumors and trash talking. Yep. And that followed me from middle school all the way through high school.
0: Did you have sex with multiple people in middle school uh, at your choice? Uh, Just one. Just, just one, one. My choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you graduate from middle school. I'm assuming you break up with said boyfriend at some point.
1: We did. We <laughs> did. It wasn't a long-lasting <laughs> relationship. <laughs>
0: And you go to high school.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So walk me through what high school was like.
1: Well, so before high school, though, my my third assault happened. I was friends with a girl in eighth grade and her uncle had just gotten out of prison and was at her house. And it was the wild house that you wanted to be at because there was no adult supervision. Again, like she lived with her grandmother. Her mom had lots of kids. Her mom was not around. And it was basically the kids were like running the house. It's like she had teenage cousins that were there. So we could go there and we could do anything. We could leave. We had no curfew. You know, it was like, that's where you wanted to be as a kid that had a, rules. <laughs> yeah. Um, but unfortunately, uh, her uncle had just gone out of prison and came to stay there. And I had gone downstairs to get juice or something from the refrigerator. And that's when he started targeting me and he... Uh, Assaulted me in their kitchen and then proceeded to like follow me around the house anytime we left. I think I visited her one or two more times. And um, this was not penetrative assault this time, but it was, you know, hands down the pants, hands in my shirt, forcing himself to kiss me. And this man was, I was 12, 13 again. And um, this man was definitely in his 30s. And
0: it begs the question what happened to that person, too? right? I always wonder what the cycle of this is. Mm -hmm. They did something wrong to you, Mm -hmm. right? So by the time you were in eighth grade, oh no, you go.
1: Well, and it begs the question for myself, right? Because now I'm hearing these things of like, I'm easy, I'm a slut. And now, you know, this is the third person that has done something to me. And starting the own narrative in my head of like, this is who I am, you know, and yeah. just that, that, that carried with me for a really long time, too, of like, oh, this is the type of person that I am.
0: And the reality is that people are unsafe. Yes. So you had been sexually assaulted three times mm-hmm. before high school. Mm hmm. But well, by three persons, more than three times, but by three yeah. persons. What types of men made you feel safe, if any?
1: Um,
0: my grandfather. Okay, my grandfather. So you had a male figure in your life that made you feel safe. Mm-hmm. This may seem like a silly question, but did you even know or understand your sexuality? Like, did you know if you were attracted to men or not?
1: No, um, because I had definitely like kissed girls when I was younger. You know, I was also curious as a really, really small person. Um, But no, I didn't. I just was like, I just turned and this wasn't something I consciously knew. I'm saying this now as like a healing person as an adult is that. I felt that this was what I was supposed to be for. This is like, I am a sexual object. This is how I get attention. This is what people want from me. And, and then it will, it does start to turn in towards my later years of just super promiscuity, like that hyper promiscuity of just like, just going to have sex with everybody.
0: Okay. Men and women. Men and women. Okay. Mostly men, but some of that is, driven by hormones also <laughs>
1: also yeah yes.
0: I was like it's hard when those things come together at the same time
1: well because you, you know? don't know you're kind of like is it the assault that is making me a sexual person or am I already a sexual person and these bad things have happened to me and really not understanding how those are intersecting
0: yeah and and now we know how they intersect right like We are hypersexual in our middle school and high school years, and we are in hyper-exploration mode, and three individuals assaulted you, and it was not your fault, Mm -hmm. and it was independent of your sexuality and your hormones and your own desires, right? So let's try to—I'm going to take a turn into high school, since I know that you have a twenty-four-year-old daughter yeah. that you birthed when you were fifteen,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did you get pregnant so young?
1: Well, so I had done so shitty in school in middle school. I had to go to summer school going into ninth grade okay. to kind of catch up, and I uh, fell in love with a senior on the back of the the summer school bus. So I was like going into my freshman year and was super into this guy going into his senior year. And so that summer we started dating and I was super in love. And then it was totally like Greece. We got to high school and he acted like he did not even know who I was. Seniors were way too cool for me and all the senior girls hated me. So then I also started getting bullied as a freshman because all these senior girls that had been crushing on this guy for all these years is now supposedly Dating a freshman, <clears throat> so I was sexually active with this guy for a long, long time. We were on, on and off boyfriend girlfriend, and then come to find out, towards the end of my freshman year, he was sleeping with everyone. He was sleeping with friends of mine. He was sleeping with people I didn't know. He had given me STDs. It, it was, is terrible. And then, kind of to get back at him, I started sleeping with everyone too, and then. Um,
0: Sounds like high school.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess that he, I actually, this is my own thinking. He got mad or whatever. He did not think of me as a person anymore because I started sleeping with everyone. And him and a friend, the first time they assaulted me, he would pick me up. I would sneak out. I snuck out of my house. I had a 10 o'clock curfew. I snuck out of my house all the time. And he picked me up one night from my house and he had a friend in the car who I really didn't like. This guy gave me the creeps. He had tried to force himself on me before and I had told my boyfriend about it and he didn't act like he cared, but this guy just, he he didn't make me feel good. Lots of hairs, tingling, all the things. Yeah. And they drove me to a dead end in like the woods and basically uh, they raped me. They forced me to give them oral and have sex with them or else they were going to take my keys and leave me in the woods and not drive me back
0: home. And this was before we had cell phones and things that could
1: yes, this was the help thing. us in any
0: way. Yeah. And
1: I wasn't, you know, and there was that factor again. I was not supposed to be out of the house, right? I had snuck out. So there's that like little guilt factor that rears its ugly head again. It's like, I'm not even supposed to be out of my house right now.
0: Right.
1: So through my tears, I do all the things that they asked me to do and they take me back home and then penetrative a, rape penetrative and oral sex rape. Right okay and then a couple weeks later I was at and and still I'm still in love with this boy still in love with him and his neighbor was like he wants to talk to you like go over his house and talk to him they lived right next door to each other so I went in and this other uh, guy that gave me the creeps and that they had raped me was at the house and this time I was like no like I'm not I'm not dealing with this this time. And they took my keys and they locked me in the house and they forced me into the basement and they beat me and they raped me.
0: So this was the first time they were physically violent as well as sexually violent.
1: Yeah. The non-boyfriend, I mean, I shouldn't even call him a boyfriend, but the friend uh, beat me with a belt to get me to undress. And so, and then they gang raped me. And I don't even remember how I got home that day. I lived walking distance from there, but I don't know. I don't remember that kind of like black hole. Mm -hmm. But I saw a friend at school the next day and she saw the bruises all over my, it was summer. So I had like a long sleeve or short sleeve shirt on, but she could see the bruises. And she made me go to our school social worker and I told them what happened and they had me write a police report and I didn't want to do any of this, but you know, like you're having people. And again, I just wanted to like forget the whole thing. So I did. I did a police report, and then this friend that was helping me actually w- like had a crush on the boyfriend at the same time, and she ended up going to the police station with them and telling them that I lied about the whole thing. So then now there's this huge rumor at school that now I have lied about being raped, and this was my boyfriend was a senior. And the other boy was a star basketball player.
0: Are these people dead? I, no, I, they're not. (laughs) Like the assholes that fucking raped Juanita. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. And the girl, has she, did you, have you ever talked to her again? Well, she's married to the
1: boyfriend now. They're married. They have four kids. (laughs) Isn't that fucking crazy? I'm tagging
0: him in the post. Juanita. It, it's, that's it, crazy.
1: So after that, like it was the first time, right? Four different people or five different people have assaulted me. And this was the first time that I was going to speak out about it. And then the first time I speak out about it, this trusted, confident goes and basically says that I've lied. About, I've told her that I've lied about the whole thing, that none of it is real. So I shut down again and I don't talk about that again for like another 20 years. But the issue is, and this kind of leads us into the birth, the first birth story is that, um, I got pregnant.
0: In the gang rape where you were beat.
1: Uh, it was either there the very next night I had sex with him again the next night. Cause my mother had gotten in a fight at school. I got kicked out of school. My mother was sending me to another state to live with my father. She was done with me sneaking out and fighting and doing all the things. So, I had been raped by him the day before, and then I was leaving to move away and to say goodbye. I had sex with this boy again because I was...
0: Change that narrative. Yeah. Change that (laughs) narrative. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because the adults in your life had failed you, and -hmm. the people that were there to protect you didn't protect you, including the school social workers and the police. Yeah. You have no fault in that decision. So you became pregnant. Yeah.
1: And I was like you, I heard your podcast. I knew I was pregnant the next morning. Oh. I had sex yeah. with him that night and I woke up and I was like, and look, I had only had a period for a year. <laughs> I had just got my period. Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to get my period. And I knew that I was pregnant.
0: Feel I felt different for people yeah. who have listened to that episode. Like I... And In, I instantly knew my whole entire body felt completely different from head to toe.
1: I went to go to the bathroom and I was like, oh, it's everything is different. Something is, is inside of me now. Yeah.
0: I'm going to jump <laughs> way ahead right now and then I'm going to come ahead. back. OK. Does he know that he fathered your child?
1: Mm-hmm. He does. He wanted me to have an abortion.
0: He does know this. OK. So I was just wondering, do they have a relationship?
1: Uh, kind of, they do now. I really wanted her, I grew up not knowing a couple of my siblings, and so I wanted her to know her siblings. So okay. I had, I reached out to the mother, the ex-friend, swallowed my pride and ego so that the girls could know each other. <clears throat>
0: okay. Was there ever paternity? Like, did he say like, oh, this isn't my child and there has to be a oh, paternity? Oh, for sure. The,
1: the whole pregnancy.
0: Okay. So you move. So you So you know instantly you're pregnant, but then you're- Moving again?
1: I moved to my dad's house. So I was in Virginia. I moved to my dad's house in Maryland, but I did okay. come back to Virginia for the next school year. Okay. But all these people had graduated. They were gone. So okay. it was like a whole whole new school almost.
0: Okay, but now you're but four. now I'm pregnant. Right, you're how many months pregnant, right? A couple months pregnant?
1: I'm th- like three months pregnant when sophomore year starts.
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you some hard questions. All right. Did you get medical care for your pregnancy?
1: Kind of, kind of two times. So it was late night. They had these things in Virginia. If anybody else knows, some people don't know what I'm talking about, but there were these commercials that came on really late at night that were like, are you a teen? Could you be pregnant? Are you scared? Call this 1-800 number. And it was what I have now know as they were crisis pregnancy centers, but they're run by pro-life people. So I called because I was alone and I was scared and I was pregnant. And so I called and they came and they picked me up on the corner after school one day, me and my best friend, 14 years old, and they drove us to their office and they gave me a a P-test. And then while they're waiting on the P-test, they sat me and my best friend in a room and played abortion videos for us, like graphic abortion videos.
0: Okay. Now, had you... So you, had you taken an at-home test, Mm -mm. you just knew and you were, you didn't have your period and there were changes in your body and you just knew. So that was the first time that you had like confirmation, like, oh, I am, I'm actually pregnant.
1: Right. And they, their whole narrative was you were old enough to lay down and have sex. So you're old enough to have a baby. Like, you know, you can't have, can't have an abortion. They had shown us all those graphic videos. You know, we're 14, we're crying. We're like, what the hell is happening? Yeah, And then I was very impressionable. So I was like, that's right. I was old enough to have sex. I'm, I must carry this child now. And, um, and they gave me some prenatal vitamins and they actually took me these, the same organization took me to my first like checkup.
0: Okay. Did they do an ultrasound? They
1: did do an ultrasound and I saw the baby and then, um, my school nurse was really amazing. She was like the person you went to when you thought you had STD and they would like help you like go get checked without your parents. So you, and like get medicine or whatever to help you. So I had finally told miss two rest in peace, miss two. She was like everyone's heart in school. Uh, and she helped me find somebody else because I did not want to deal with this organization anymore. Um, someone else to go and, and get seen by a doctor. And I got, like these big old prenatal vitamins that I started taking. Um, But that was it for six months. I hit my pregnancy for six months.
0: So totally hit it. Totally hit it. Which is so funny because it's hard to hide depending on your body type, you know? Like at six months, I'm thinking, golly, I was... I couldn't have hidden hid my pregnancy for more than three and a half months. <laughs> I think so. some of it is
1: psychosomatic when you're hiding something, because I wasn't very big. And I think a lot of it, and it was also like, she was born in February, so it was wintertime. So it was like the the jackets got bigger. I'd always be holding something over my stomach. You know, the jeans with like a rubber band holding the, yeah. the, button, the button together. Yeah.
0: I think the younger our bodies are too, the more... You know, things just kind of fall down a little bit when you're in yeah. your late 30s and 40s with pregnancies more so than when we're 14. So that must have been really lonely, not mm. not having much support other than this like evangelical pro-life organization and your school nurse, your best friend knew
1: my best friend knew and like a, a couple friends knew, but that's it. I didn't want to talk about it. I changed the subject. I was like the master of changing the subject Yeah. until finally a teacher was like, I know you're pregnant. And if you don't tell your mom, I'm coming to your house and telling your mom. Okay. And I didn't tell my mom and she came to my house and she told my mom.
0: Okay. Oh, how'd that conversation go?
1: it's really interesting. i finally realized I live in a family of denial of like talking about things. Cause my mom said she had a feeling cause I hadn't asked her to buy me any tampons or pads. Um, but she didn't say anything. And so I was kind of like, why didn't you like say something, say something.
0: you know, denial, and, um, denial as a parent too.
1: Yeah. And so she was really sad for me at first, you know, she was like, uh, so strong of me to carry this by myself, but then she just got really angry um like there it was like silent car rides to and from the doctors like there was not um a lot of compassion or love she was just really upset and because i came from an evangelical mother who would like come in the kitchen and be like three reasons why not to have sex before you're married and like meanwhile i was totally sexually active right um and so, and that was really hard and my mother made a decision that i was not going to keep my baby I was going to place my baby for adoption. She told me that I could not live there and there would be no support if I kept my baby. And then she put me into counseling at an adoption agency. Okay. So it was very biased counseling. Mm-hmm. And I did. I I did. And the, the birth around that is um, at the end of the pregnancy, they told me I was not growing like they wanted me to anymore. I was going to be induced the next week. So I... I was going to have the baby the next week. I was induced. I had an epidural. I, I had a vaginal birth and, um, I got to spend a day with her in the hospital and then we did not leave the hospital
0: together. I have a lot of questions. Um, do you remember how many weeks gestation you were?
1: I was about 36 or 37,
0: 36 or 37. Okay. For those of you that are listening And Juanita, you may or may not know this. I started my career working in crisis teen pregnancy. So there were two organizations where I live, uh, Florence Crittenton and Lois's Lodge. And I supported, um, the youngest was a 10-year-old and the oldest 18. So 10 to 18. And that's how I kind of grew my experience of being a doula was by teaching classes and supporting Very young persons through their pregnancy. All of them had chosen, I'm going to air quote, chosen life, right? Um, And I don't know how swayed those decisions were from parents and peers and organizations, like in your case. Um, But they were all, all but like a few were giving their children or vessels, I should say, maybe vessels of their babies to another family for parenthood. Um, The, the body is not finished growing. (laughs) So um, interuterine growth restriction, IUGR or SGA small for gestational age. There's different things that can cause that. Um, But one of those is your age and your, only been on your period and hormones for your and your h- hips and your pelvis, right? And in order to achieve a vaginal birth and to give the the baby abundant room, is often an early delivery. So mm-hmm. um, that makes sense to me that you were induced at thirty six or thirty seven weeks for probably what's called IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction. Because you likely were so small yourself without um, big wide hips and open pelvis um, just yet at that young age.
1: I really appreciate you sharing that because that is one kind of lingering question that I've had because I know as an older person who's studied birth and how many people are uh, coaxed into being induced because 38, you can have a baby now. Like you don't have to wait till you're 40 weeks. So I've often wondered if I was kind of shoot along of like let's just get this baby out of her so I appreciate you sharing that because that's information I did not have
0: and you know I don't have your medical record and I'm not a doctor but my experience tells me that that's likely what happened right is that the baby was going to be safer on the outside than on the inside Mm -hmm. and that you were going to be safer with your baby the baby I don't know if he identifies your baby but the baby on the outside than inside and so. You gave birth. I gave birth.
1: Um, we didn't leave the hospital together, but it was an open adoption. Mm -hmm. So I had picked the family and I have to say, I just, I'm so grateful for this family because it's, I've never heard another open adoption like this. Most people share pictures. Um, I would go and stay at their house for the weekends. We'd meet uh, every couple of months at a park. I took her to New York for her 13th birthday on like a train ride for three days. Like we're, I'm very integrated into their family and they had adopted uh, and my daughter's biracial and they're a white couple and they had a couple other biracial adopted kids and their birth mothers were not involved. And so I became like the pseudo birth mother for her, for You're all awesome. the kids. Yeah. Um, and, and just to be able to, it was still really hard. I went through, it was not my choice. And I went through five different lawyers between 15 and 16 years old, trying to get her back, but not having family support or money the lawyers are not going to help you. And so the family knew I was trying to get her back and they cut back all visitation for like the first couple of years and everything had to be supervised for the first couple of years until they finally felt safe and comfortable with me again. And then we were able to have this relationship blossom and she's been to California to visit me and. Okay. Yeah.
0: Wow, that is a unique and beautiful story. The reason we are, our paths are kind of, you know, but there are two main reasons why I became a doula Juanita. And the first is because the first time I was ever a doula was when one of my best friends came to me and said, she was married, she was pregnant, we were in our 20s, you know. And she said, I was a vessel to parenthood in high school at a very young age. And I've already been through labor and delivery. And I need you by my side. And I was like, okay, let's do this. It was a closed adoption. And I have asked her. The child would now probably be about 26 or 27 years old. And um, he never sought her out. She went on to ha- be a very successful person in life with four other children. And um, I often wonder, you know, mm-hmm. um, the clothes. But that tells me maybe he had a, a beautiful life with two parents and no, like, hole, I guess, for yeah. for her. But the choice of continuing a pregnancy being a vessel to parenthood for other persons, Mm -hmm. abortion. Like, these are too big, too big for 14 and 15-year-olds. Yeah. When you look back at that birth, like, not going into spontaneous labor, but being into induced labor and an epidural, like, had anyone informed you about childbirth or what you were going to feel no,
1: and I think most of my feels actually come from the postpartum. So like I knew I knew I was being induced, I knew I was having a baby at this point. I didn't even know the word placenta. People were still referring to it as the afterbirth. Okay. So like I remember them asking if I wanted to see the afterbirth and I was like, "No." I remember my th- my daughter's father being like, "What's the thing that comes out after birth and not even being able to like explain to him cuz I didn't know." And then we didn't leave the hospital together. And I get home, and no one has talked to me about bleeding, about healing, about milk leakage, engorgement, like nothing. Like I was putting, you know, the makeup pad removers. I was putting those in my bra to like soak up the milk leaking, so I could go back. I was back in in my jeans and back in school the next week.
0: Yeah. Mm-mm. Criminal. <laughs> and I had,
1: I had not told anybody that I was placing my daughter for adoption and people knew that I was pregnant. And so again, I became the master at like avoiding questions and avoiding people, not answering my door. When people came by, people would come to like drop presents off to her and I wouldn't open the door because everyone thought that I had her. I wasn't able to say that I had um, placed her for adoption.
0: Like what do we do now? 24 years later, With that information, I'm going to tell a quick story about my high school and now as a doula and a birth worker and someone who cares for for her whole life and career for pregnant persons, many people were pregnant in high school, right? But there was one girl in particular and I played soccer with her and we dated twins. So... Identical twins. Like sometimes in the hallways I couldn't even tell them apart. And I remember feeling so deeply, like so many feelings about her and her pregnancy. Because I was being called to birth work, right? And I never could get the courage to like approach her and have a conversation with her in her pregnancy. And like the doula in me now is like, I I need to, I need to talk to you. I need to ask you all the things. How are you doing? Can I give you a massage? How are your feet feeling? Like, do you have the education you need? Do you have the resources? Do you need as someone holding your hand, Is someone protecting you, Is someone being a witness for you, you know? And so this is like, here I am at 43 years old and I think about her all of the time. And, I you know, at some point, maybe I'll probably try to find her on social media and, and tell her I've been like gently dueling her soul from afar for like thirty years. But I, she, she gave the child up for adoption also, and was right back at, was right back at school. And I just remember um, the massive avoidance that occurred from all people, mm-hmm. like children, not knowing how to approach another child who just had a child. Yeah,
1: and also expecting that child to like just go back to chemistry. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. In the middle of postpartum hormones, right? How did you get your milk to dry up? I have no idea. No.
1: I think it just did on its own. I'm so surprised that I didn't get like clogged up, mastitis. I definitely had engorgement because I was like, look how big my boobs are. Like, these are like hard. These are like what fake boobs are. And then, uh, yeah, for several weeks I used the little pads as my milk leaked
0: and then it just finally stopped. Yeah. Did the biological father ever see her or attend the birth?
1: He came to the hospital uh, with a friend uh, right before we left. Okay. To see her. Okay. And his family didn't even know. My best friend's mom called his family to say, congratulations. Like, he had a baby. And so they came to the hospital, and they they had no clue. He He hadn't told anybody.
0: Did right away, was he like, you need to do a paternity test? Or was he like, I know this is my baby?
1: He knew. To me, he said he knew. He knew. He knew when he got me pregnant. He knew. But to other people, he was not telling them.
0: Okay. Did the adoptive family meet him? hmm Do they have a relationship? Was that an open adoption on that side as well?
1: He did not take them up on it as much as I did, but they always left that door open for him.
0: Yeah. So Juanita, yeah. you are healing in this postpartum period in high school and you go right back. And then you shared with me that you basically went on with your life and didn't talk to anyone about the assaults and the things that had happened to you for 20 more years or so. But I know that you have two other children and that you are a speaker and you have a platform on trauma-informed birth. And so I was wanting to pivot to your next birth stories and how life changed from that girl in high school in that darkness, right? That postpartum period is dark for anyone without trauma and you add trauma and not going home from the hospital with your baby and all the things on top of it and no one is going to be okay. And so, how did you move through life? Like we talked about with Paws Anywhere being your garden. How does Juanita, the 15 year old, get to 34 years old, right? And a home birth?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, lots of fertilizer for that, for that <laughs> garden, um, which is great. My therapist says flowers need fertilizer to grow, right? Yeah. So, um, I never really got out of that dark place. I, I was a drinker and a drugger and super promiscuous and just numbing, 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 numbing. I didn't graduate high school. I got my GED. I somehow got into college and, um, and graduated. But again, drinking, drugging all through school. Got married and we started to think about a family and for whatever reason i think marriage even exasperated some of the dark place of like being with one person and my drinking got really out of control our first year of marriage and i started having an affair and it got really messy and really dark my husband found out about the affair i was not coming home i was blacking out drunk he kicked me out of the house. I started going to AA. AA made everything worse. And finally, it was just like, I, I'm a big meditator. And that year in 2014, I had really said, this is the year I'm going to like wake up. And every morning, I'm going to move and meditate. And I just kept getting this message. You have to be by yourself. You have to live alone. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> like one year into marriage. There's no way that I can do this. I cannot leave my husband. And the messaging just kept getting stronger. So, so did the drinks. So, so did the partying because I was trying to bat that out. But yet every morning I was still meditating and still getting this message. And I would ask my husband, like, hey, can you leave for a weekend? Like, I just I, I'm getting this message that I need to be alone. And he'd say, no, <laughs> this is my house. I'm not going anywhere. Like, whatever you need to deal with, we can deal with together. And um, and something I know you're familiar with, because you said in your podcast before, and I had to tell my truth in order to save my life. Yeah. And I had and for some reason I had to be alone to do that. And so my husband had said if I left that I'd be ending the marriage. That was it. He wouldn't talk to me. So it took me even longer. And I felt like I was going upstream against sandpaper.
0: I know that and feeling.
1: I, yeah. And I, I left. I sublet a room. I didn't tell anybody anything. I stopped talking to family, friends. I didn't tell anybody where I lived. My husband went out of town. I dropped him off at the airport. And I used that as my, my exit. And I moved all my stuff out. And I sublet a room. And I cried a lot <laughs> and I started intensive therapy, The like EMDR, if
0: you're familiar with EMDR. Oh, yeah. I'm an EMDR dropout. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. It was, it's like, you know, I'll probably go back to it, but it was so intense oh, and yeah. so hard. And it's like the body, you know, I'm reading that book right now. The body keeps, keeps the, score. the score. It's life. This is a life altering book for me. And I so, recommend. It, it's really hard for me. It's really hard. I am I ended up doing um, what I'm doing right now is body work where mm. they massage gently in these different places in your abdomen and stuff. And then I just cry the whole time. It's really interesting.
1: Love it. So trying to well, get that. So you know, this is, I had to live alone. Like I could had not to. be doing EMDR where I am in life right now. No. So I was having and I was going to like I was living in a sublet, right? On like a part-time retail job. Um, and so I found a sliding scale counseling center. And I was going to therapy twice a week. I was having double sessions. They were having sessions where like people would watch you while your therapist had sessions and then they'd give you feedback. And I was like, Yeah, everything. Everyone watched me, everyone helped me because I did not know I could see myself wrecking the train and I could not stop myself. I could not stay sober for more than two days. I didn't know why I was so out of control. And I felt like my 14 year old self again. And I finally sat in therapy and it was like, I just want to go over my whole sexual history from like the first kiss. Like, I just want to talk about everything. And so I still, I like couldn't say that I had been raped, but I was like, I'm going to go through everything. And then when we get to these activated ones, then we can like flush them out. Once I was finally able to say out loud, I was raped. It was like being heard was my healing and the unhealthy behavior stopped. I started fasting. I stopped smoking weed and drinking for like these two months that I was gone. And I just started writing and reading. I've ingested every survivor book on the market and I was able to like, see like, oh, that's why I was doing all these things. I was trying to like protect myself because I held on to this for 25 years from the first assault. And so my husband took me back. He was very open to hearing what had happened. We read a book together that was written for partners of wives that had been sexually abused as children. It was like written for me. And um, we got back together. And a a year later, we decided to start conceiving. And so I was like clearing the womb home, womb massages, yoni steams, yoni eggs. I was like, I want to clear my baby's home out. Meditating, doing all the things, you know, still in therapy, sober, sober. So I was really excited. I got pregnant. I was, I had a whole intentional spiritual pregnancy, all the hippy dippy things you could possibly think of. Saw the business of being born. Had two friends that had had home births, and was like, "All right, I'm on team home birth now." And because I had had no choice, no voice, no education in the hospital setting as a teenager. I wanted it to just be midwife, doula, husband. That's it. Okay. I wanted, I wanted my voice heard and I wanted it in, in my house <laughs> under my, my lighting, my food choices, like everything mine. That is how I was going to, you know, get my power back. I wanted yeah. to empower myself.
0: And no one was going to separate you from your baby.
1: Right. Right. So most of labor went off without a hitch. And I, once I hit kind of like transition, like really feeling the baby, um, I panicked and I froze and I, uh, I was completely dissociated in, in, in labor. I have a video of my wife smacking my leg and being like, Juanita, Juanita, you have to come back. Like you need to be present. You have to come here. And, you know, saying things like, I know a lot of moms will say like, I can't. And I was saying things like it's stuck. I don't want to do this anymore. And just, I was, I was so, I was terrified. Yep. And so um, I was heavily coached to push and the baby came out. He was totally fine. And then my placenta didn't detach. And so. That makes admit, perfect sense to me. I totally think it was psychosomatic, you know, saying things like it's stuck and the whole body being frozen.
0: Mm-hmm. Not releasing.
1: Not releasing in my Midwife tried to manually scrape it out, which is excruciating. Uh, we did the birth stool on the couch and she, at about an hour and a half, she finally called it and she called 911 and I had to go to the emergency room and I had to leave my my one-year-old baby, or my one-hour-old old one hour old baby. And so that was like a trigger from the past, having to be separated from my child again. Like EMT came up in the, our one-bedroom apartment, six EMT people put my naked body on a stretcher white sheet over it took me to the hospital where we were bullied by everybody because we were home birthers that transferred to a hospital and you know they didn't think we had any proper prenatal care and
0: but you had did you have did you have placenta accreta
1: no and here's the funny thing so they tried to manually get it out too and they couldn't so I went to the OR And when they took it out, there was just a small tear. So like most of it had detached and it was heart shaped. Mm -hmm. And one of the lobes of the heart was just still attached a little bit. And I had to fight with them to take my placenta home. (laughs) Did you do
0: encapsulation?
1: (laughs) I didn't because I lost so much blood that they wanted Uh to do a blood transfusion that my midwife suggested just, she chopped it all up into small pieces and we just made, um, We, I did it. My husband made placenta smoothies every day.
0: Okay. I want to do a little bit of teaching on that um, with the blood loss. So after you give birth to the baby, the placenta should peel away from the uterine wall within about five to 30 minutes. It usually um, peels away very quickly as the exchange when the baby starts breathing oxygen and maybe the cord is cut, but usually when the baby's just, you know, not getting its oxygenated blood from the placenta, there's a series of reactions that then tell the placenta and organ, your job here is done. And the placenta will peel away from the uterus and the uterus will start to heavily contract because where the placenta is peeling away, it will be bleeding. And so the uterus needs to contract and to clamp down to close off those blood vessels so that you have the the least amount of bleeding. It's very normal to bleed 500 mLs or less, which is what you would give if you donated at the Red Cross. But if part of your placenta, in your case, Juanita, had peeled away, but a small piece was still attached, the uterus isn't able to clamp down, and so the, it, those blood vessels are bleeding. So oftentimes in a home birth or so, they'll apply pressure waiting, you know, on almost like you would if you were bleeding anywhere in your body and apply pressure to try to get it to stop. But if the uterus isn't clamping down, you continue to bleed. And so it sounds like you probably bled for an hour and a half, which is a long time. In my state, um, they will call it at 60 minutes. So if you are at home and you um, are, are, we're at 60 minutes and the placenta hasn't, you know, kind of fully emerge, then it would be a transfer sometime Mm -hmm. sooner. But um, so that's a long time to bleed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, of course, that's where the blood transfusion came in. So I just wanted to make sure the audience is kind of understanding that those pieces together. There's also another condition called placenta accreta. And that's kind of where the placenta almost implants into the uterine wall. And so that's a surgical procedure, too. Um, So in your case, it was just a little piece of the lobe had not detached and um, did they put you under general anesthesia or how did they get you comfortable for the procedure?
1: I got a spinal tap spinal. and I was like, I had a home birth. Like I could like, what? <laughs> and now I'm getting this spinal tap. And um, yeah, I was like, this is how I die. This is how I go. Like I was so thirsty and I was like, just someone give me water or something. They were like, you're crazy. You're about to have a spinal tap. Like you can't drink anything right now. But it was, it felt very short and they wheeled me back in the room and my husband was just like, you know, he said, all my color was gone from my face. He was super scared. Our newborn baby was at home and then, and they wanted to keep us for another day or two and and put our baby in. And we, what is it called when you go against doctor's orders? We were like, we're leaving.
0: AMA against medical advice.
1: Yeah. And we had medical advice. We had our, our, our midwife, Yeah, you know, and so I trusted her word and I trusted that I felt good enough to go home and I wanted to go back to my baby.
0: Yeah. We should call it AOMA against our medical advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after they were able to get your whole placenta out, you were able to, mm-hmm. to go home and be connected. And yeah. was this um, a male sex or female sex baby? It was a male sex baby. Okay. What's his name? Roman. Roman. What a beautiful name.
1: And he still very much identifies with being a boy sex. He's very much in love with his (laughs) genitalia right now. (laughs) I will say I saw a picture of me in birth. Like my doula had sent me a whole bunch of pictures. And that's when I knew what had happened because I saw this one picture that I actually used at the birth trauma conference. And it, I could. I didn't see myself birthing. I saw myself as a very scared little girl. It was like all the fear and frozen in my face. And I was like, oh my gosh, that I did not have pictures of myself from that time. Yeah. But, but that look and everything that that picture emitted to me, I was like, holy crap. I went somewhere else. I went back there to all the times. And my midwife said it beautifully. She said, "When you're sexually assaulted. You don't have control over your body. And when you're giving birth, you also don't have control over your body.
0: We, pause anywhere, company? That's that's a pause for me. We need to sit there for a minute because there is no greater truth as a 17-year veteran birth doula than that sentence right there. So can you say it just again and louder and yeah. all the yes, things, yeah. like with power? Say that statement louder and pow- powerfully.
1: When you're sexually assaulted, you have no control over your body. And when you're giving birth, you don't have any control over your body either.
0: Yeah. I have this platform of teaching people on how to plan and prepare for the birth that they want, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that planning and preparation is that I almost feel like every time I fail at helping people understand how difficult the surrender is, you have no control at all when you're going to go into labor what it's going to look like how it's going to go what position your baby's going to be in how you're going to feel and if you have unresolved trauma birth can be very dark and very scary and in individuals that I work with that haven't resolved their trauma I let them know like an epidural is a tool that will help you numb Mm -hmm. or you need to put the hard work in in advance for trauma informed healing before you venture down a road of unmedicated birthing, which can be very healing and redemptive if you've prepared to work through your trauma in advance. So you went into the birth process, you had done the yona steaming and you had cleared the womb, but you hadn't finished healing the seven-year-old and the 14-year-old inside of you.
1: Yes. And it's when I started learning about, it took me about a year to really start processing Roman's birth um, because I saw that picture and was just like, no, no. Um, but that's when I, it led me down the road to somatic healing work and somatic therapy Mm -hmm. and the body keeps the score and how trauma and memories live on a cellular and muscular level. And that was something because I had done all the talky talky and like head and, you know, like done the womb cleaning, but I had not actually integrated it on a body level or understood that how our memories can live in our bodies.
0: So what are some resources right now that you would direct people to?
1: Uh, the Body Keeps the Score.
0: <laughs> the book, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The audio book's phenomenal too, you guys. So
1: Yeah. Um, also, I love, I really got into tapping. There's a really beautiful book called Preparing for Childbirth. I got on Audible. It's uh, a British woman narrates it. Um, but it goes through meditations and different tapping points of your body. And visualization um, was really huge for me. And then just continuing like yoga and movement, Uh, again, watching births. I like had a whole YouTube playlist of the way I wanted to birth and actually learning about how the baby comes out of the vaginal canal, how it goes out, but it comes back, it goes out a little more and it comes (laughs) back. And like, so understanding really like digging deep and understanding how the body actually works and the way I was able to surrender for the birth post Roman was understanding that my body knows exactly what it's doing. There wasn't a day that I was like, and today we shall make eyelashes. Like my body like knew how to get pregnant and it knew how to grow this baby. And like, even if I'm in the middle of the woods, my body and this baby are going to know how to get out of me without my thinking brain Yeah,
0: and surrendering in that way. Yeah. The surrender is, um, I find myself, as their coach the witness right mm-hmm. when i'm working with a lot of my dual clients who have a history of sexual trauma specifically like i just have so many moments where like i'm sitting on the floor and they're sitting on the toilet and they're holding their baby in and i'm like like i'm i'm going to hold you as i'm your mother or your grandmother or your sister or your friend, but I'm going to hold you right now. Like if you'll let me into your space, I'm going to hold you. And together we're going to take a deep breath in and we are going to let go and breathe down and we are going to release this baby. And you're really releasing trauma at the same time that you're releasing your baby. But I find that we have fixes that don't like to dilate Babies that don't want to rotate and come down and our minds are so powerful. We can literally hold our babies in Mm. and we can hold that experience, those experiences in because it's a choice to birth and it's a choice to become a mother and become a parent or become a vessel to parenthood. Um, And if you're unmedicated, like you have to let go. You have to learn to let go and
1: work and work with your body. I think one of the most powerful tools was talking to my baby and to my body. Like I trust you. Yeah. I'm ready for you. We got this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just come, just come, mm-hmm. just come. <laughs> and are, those are all the tools that you feel like helped change the trauma on a cellular level.
1: Yeah. And I continued to, uh, Yoni steam. I'm a big uh, fan of Yoni steaming. And Mm -hmm. I actually worked with a a Yoni steam parrot perinatalist that I forget what they call themselves, like the proper term, but I had a whole end of labor, uh, excuse me, end of pregnancy, labor, Yoni uh, plan. Mm -hmm. So I actually did Yoni steaming starting at 37, 38 weeks. And during that, I started using my visualization. Like, like you said, our minds are so powerful So any energy, I started healing my set cells as I was sitting on that Yoni steam Mm -hmm. and just visualizing the release of any energy that was in there that I no longer needed of any trauma that I didn't need. And then leading up to that pregnancy too, also just like movement work, right? Movement, energy, emotions are energy in motion, right? And getting it out and
0: and seeing what's still stuck in there. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I... My listeners know I love my Peloton. Oh, my okay. Peloton is like where I go to heal. I just cry every ride. By the time I hit minute 20, my body has physically, like my heart rate is so high. My body is broken down and I process so much. I have so many like hallucinative visualizations on that Peloton of like release. It's a very powerful tool. Movement is a very powerful tool for healing. Um listeners did you guys listen to the steamy chick episode so i oh that's who i'm
1: talking about yeah yeah
0: kelly garza i interviewed her on the podcast and i'm like this is like literally i'm looking staring right here is my yoni steamer in my closet Right, i have this beautiful yoni steaming stool that i got off of etsy from a designer and then i get all of my herbs from steamy chick from kelly garza it's wonderful
1: It's so great. I actually steamed uh, the day I went into labor too. Like I was in labor and I kicked everybody, my son and my husband out. And I was like, this is my last time alone. I need to steam and meditate.
0: Yeah, And Uh, then she was
1: born born like five hours later.
0: Oh my gosh. I love it. Okay. Well, that brings us to your third birth. Thank you for being part of the birth story family and listening to this episode. On Tuesdays every week, our doula diaries, little snippets and tidbits from my week, along with some teaching and education. And then on Thursdays, we meet here for our birth stories and our expert speakers. So thank you for being here and listening to the podcast twice a week. And if you are left wanting more, like Heidi, I've listened to all the episodes, I've read your entire book, then I hope you will meet me in Birth Story Academy and let me be your online childbirth educator to prepare you for your hospital birth, no matter what that looks like. Thank you for listening to Birth Story.